We live in an age of distraction. Apparently, I was reading this week that the average person checks their phone 58 times a day and spends 4 hours 25 minutes on their phone. Now, there's some of you in the room who are shocked by that, that somebody would spend so much time on their phone and check their phone so much. If you're a parent of a teenager, you're shocked that it's so little. I mean, 58 times, if only, if only I was around some young people recently with phones and uh, literally it just, I mean, it's just crazy. Like, you've got a bunch of young people sitting beside each other just like this. I mean, you can do that at home on your own. But they get together and they are focused on their phones. And it's this age of distraction. And, and these things have, have made things so much worse. Netflix say that they count two to three hours a day as moderate viewing. Two to three hours a day is moderate for them. We live in a distracted world and these little wonderful mobile devices have made our lives so much better in so many ways and yet so much more complicated and distracted. We live in a world that's uh, called the attention economy because the battle is for eyeballs. When I was back in the good old days, back in the olden days, there were really three sources of, of media. And, I mean, there was, there was television, there was the radio, the wireless, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, there were newspapers. Think of it now. All of the sources of information, all the things that are pulling on our time, that are pulling on our focus, that are saying, look here, look here, look here. Social media, news, Netflix, Amazon, YouTube, TikTok, 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 TikTok. I mean, I, I, I don't have a TikTok, I, so I, I, but, but it just seems that these things are created to be addictive. Literally, they're created to give you a dopamine hit. Um, Instagram, I, I, I will confess to that one. Notifications on your phone, text messages, WhatsApp groups. How many of you are part of a WhatsApp group that you wish you'd never got into, but now you can't get out of it? <laughs> Parents of, in your classroom, like your kids, all the parents in P7 are in a WhatsApp group, which is wonderful when it's important. When it's... <laughs> When it's not, you're thinking, how do I get out of this without, you know, anybody knowing? You can't mute it. Um, but there's, 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 we live in this unfocused world where we're constantly interrupted. And, and the, I, I just, I found that when I want to do work, I need to put this physically either in another room or in an, a drawer. Because if it's sitting there, you don't even think about it. You just impulsively pick it up. You impulsively start strolling through other people's lives. You impulsively start looking at the news. You impulsively check the weather for the 14th time that day. It's going to rain. We know it's going to rain. It always rains. But we, we get this dopamine hit, and there's nothing wrong with looking at your phone as long as you're doing it intentionally. But when it just becomes this mindless distraction, then it can be damaging. And the problem isn't this. The problem isn't what is distracting you. The question is this, what is it distracting you from? It's not what is distracting you, because there's always been distractions. It's what is it distracting you from? What is going on in front of you? What is going on around you? What is going on maybe inside of you that this is distracting you? 
from seeing. What is God doing in front of you? What is God doing around you? What is God maybe doing inside you? But you keep yourself so distracted all day, every day, that you don't recognize the fingerprints and the whisper of the Holy Spirit in your life. And we're going to get to Exodus 3, and I planned only to preach in Exodus 3, but I got caught up in Exodus 1 and 2. But in Exodus 3, we're going to see that Moses saw a burning bush. We all know the story. But it was only when he turned aside and paid attention to it that God spoke to him and changed the trajectory of his entire life. If he had been distracted, if he had been unfocused, if he had been too busy doing other things, he would have missed this pivotal threshold moment in his life. And what I want to get to later on the sermon, spoiler alert, is how many of those burning bush moments in our lives do we miss? Because we're distracted. How often is God whispering to us? How often is he placing little signposts in front of us? How often is he leading and directing us, doing something in front of us, doing something in us, doing something around us? But we're distracted and we're unfocused and we miss it. Let's get to the background in Exodus chapter 1. But the story of Exodus doesn't begin in Exodus, it begins with Joseph. Remember, Joseph, any dream will do. Remember, Joseph sold as a slave by his brothers into Egypt. He spends years there. He's in Potiphar's house. He's in prison. And eventually he ends up in the palace because Pharaoh has dreams he can't interpret. Joseph interprets them. Seven years of plenty. Seven years of famine. Joseph's put in charge of the land. His brothers who threw him into a pit earlier and sold him as a slave, they come down and there's this big emotional reunion. And the, uh, Joseph's family, uh, 11 brothers and their father, move to Egypt. And they're treated as royalty. They're treated with great favor. They're given their own land called Goshen in the middle of a famine. And they flourish and it's a wonderful, wonderful place for them. But by the time we get to Exodus 1, verse 8, things have taken a turn. And they're now slaves. Let's read uh, verses 8 to, to 14. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Just keep that there for a second. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. That is the story of God's people throughout every generation. The more they're persecuted, the more the enemy comes against them, the more they're oppressed, the more the church grows. That's why in China, there's more than 100 million Christians right now. And we are seeing an increase in pressure and even persecution coming on the people of God in the West. And of course we don't want that, 
but there's something about it that makes me go bring it on. One, because we'll see who the true Christians are, but two, because God does his best work when the pressure's on. Because the gates of hell will never prevail against the church of God. The more, look at what it says, the more that, 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 that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Oh God, the more your people are oppressed in this land, the more we, may we multiply and spread the gospel to a lost people. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So initially they were treated like royalty and now they're treated like rubbish. Initially it was a place of great favor and now it becomes a place of great fear. And my point is simply this, not every word that starts out good finishes up good. You see, it was right for them to go to Egypt, but it wasn't right for them to stay in Egypt. They stayed and they stayed and they stayed and they stayed and they stayed. And they overstayed their welcome. And not every place that starts out right for us ends up being a good place for us. There's places where we go, there's jobs, there's relationships, there's all sorts of things in our lives and they start out places of great favour and there's blessing and there's friendship and there's warmth and there's acceptance. But that doesn't mean we stay there forever. And sometimes things turn but we still stay there because we've got comfortable there because it's familiar. Even if it's familiar slavery, it's better than unfamiliar freedom. They should have moved on because slavery didn't happen overnight in Egypt. It wasn't like they woke up one morning and suddenly they were all slaves. There was a gradual disdain towards the Hebrews. There was a gradual disliking and turning away from them. Neighbors who used to be friendly started to ignore them. There was a gradual pushing away, but they stayed there. And not every place that starts well is somewhere that you should stay forever. The enemy's plan has always been to bring people into slavery. And God's plan has always been the opposite. God's desire has always been to lead people into freedom. The very first words God says to humanity in the book of Genesis, the first three words he says are this, you are free. You are free. And the enemy shows up and says, did God really say? And God's greatest desire has always been to lead people from slavery into freedom. And the enemy's greatest desire is to take people's freedom away and lead them into slavery. But here's the problem. Our world tells you that slavery is freedom and freedom is slavery. Our world tells you that God wants to oppress you. 
God wants to restrict you. God wants to confine you. God is a killjoy. God doesn't want you to have pleasure. God doesn't want you to have fun. Real freedom is doing what you want. Real freedom is living a licentious life. Real freedom is not being answerable to anybody. Real freedom is being God of your own life. And our culture falls for it again and again and again. And we end up in slavery to sin. And we end up in bondage and oppression and and addicted to things that God never wanted us to have in our lives. The world lulls us into slavery. Slavery to sin, slavery to self. The devil is like Pharaoh who seeks to control us and ultimately destroy us. But Jesus Christ came to set us free. Look at what Galatians 5.1 says. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But you need to stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. He's telling this church, Paul is telling this church, Christ has set you free, but there is something in the human heart that always gravitates back towards slavery. There is something within us that always moves back towards being owned by things, being told what to do, being controlled by things. We gravitate towards do's and don'ts. We don't want to think, just tell us what to do. I mean, we saw that in the last few years when we were told, stand here, wear this, don't go visit your relatives, don't do this. Stay this far apart. And we became slaves for a season. And do you know what the problem is? When the pharaohs back then and the pharaohs today get power, they don't give it up easily. But there's something about fear that creates slavery in all of us. Just tell us what to do. Tell us what... what, We see it in so many parts of our lives. Pharaohs will always arise because there's always a desire in the human heart to be told what to do. But it's not just out there. It's in here that we lead ourselves into slavery. What starts good can slowly enslave us. What we used to control begins to control us. What we used to choose now becomes something that becomes an impulsive thing that we can't control. We slip and slide into slavery. Let me give you a few examples. Healthy patriotism and love for your country is good. People will tell you that's wrong. I don't believe that. I believe loving your country is a good thing. Racism and sectarianism is evil. One is good, taken to the extreme, it becomes slavery to racism and sectarianism. Paying attention to your finances is good. Stinginess is slavery. Financial blessing is good. Greed is slavery. Enjoyment of food is good. Amen. Gluttony is slavery. Pleasure is good. Perversion is slavery. Medication is good. Addiction is slavery. Helping others is good. 
people-pleasing and approval addiction is slavery. Passion for Jesus is good. Legalistic religion is slavery. It's a fine line, isn't it? And we all slide that direction. How many of you know someone that has become a Christian and you've been so excited because they were living this like really ungodly life, but actually you preferred them before they became a Christian? I mean, let's just be honest, okay? I know in church we like to, but, but, but really, some people are worse after they become Christians. Because they've just replaced their addiction to the drugs or the alcohol or whatever, the beating or whatever it was, to an addiction to religion. And they become just as nasty with Christianity as they did with the bottle. The human heart is deceitful and we slide from the freedom that God wants us to enjoy into slavery. And these things begin to control us and take over our lives. And Jesus' desire is always to set us free because he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. In Egypt, Pharaoh sees how these Hebrews keep multiplying. I mean, they're just, they're reproducing like crazy. And he begins to get nervous and he begins to stir up racism and he begins to bring fear. You know, what if they turn against us? What if they rise up against us? You know, what we're going to do? Uh, he gets more and more threatened and he becomes more and more desperate and he gets more and more extreme. He, 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 he orders, let's kill all the baby boys. Look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw it into the Nile. But let every girl live. Genocide, let's kill all the males. And you know, a culture that is evil and wicked will always try to destroy the men. And this isn't a sexist thing. Women, the Debras are rising up, okay? I am for you. I am for you. May the Debras, the warriors of God, rise up, okay? But a culture that, that is evil, and when the enemy wants to destroy a culture, he goes after the men. What happened at the time of the birth of Christ? Kill every boy. And we're seeing that in this culture where there's toxic masculinity and emasculating and gender fluidity and all of this stuff that is designed to make men feel inferior just for being men. If you can control the men and if you can emasculate the men and if you can get rid of the men, the culture just slides into complete degradation and destruction. And that's what happens here. Pharaoh says, let's get rid of all the boys. Let's destroy the males. That's the big picture background of Exodus 1. God's people are living in harsh, brutal, oppressive slavery. And it was never meant to be this way because they are God's chosen people. They are royal people. They belong to him. They've been called by him. But they accepted it as a way of life. And so that's the big picture. And now the camera narrows its focus into one family and to the birth of one baby. Because whenever God wants anything done on earth, he always picks people. God could send angels down. He could send fire down. He could do things in all sorts of ways. But throughout all of history, God has chosen to partner with men and women whose hearts are available to him. The enemy uses people 
We all know that. We all know people that the enemy uses. But God also uses people to stand against the enemy's work. And there's a baby boy born. And he's hidden for three months. But he's a noisy baby. He's a crying baby. I don't know if he had colic. Maybe he's just noisy. But there comes a point after three months where they realize that they can't hide him any longer. And what was Pharaoh's order? You've got to throw them in the river. So technically, they obey. Technically, they throw them in the river. They just put them in a little basket covered with tar. It's actually the Hebrew word. is The, the only other place that's used that word is for ark, for Noah. They make a little ark for him. And they bring him down to the river. And they set the baby in the bulrushes. And they step back and they wait. And they watch. Look at verse five. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. She felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister, that's Moses' sister, asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? I mean, what's the chances? They put the baby in the Nile, and who happens to come along but Princess Pharaoh? She sees the basket, hears the baby cry, opens it up, and in that moment she has compassion. She knows that baby should die. Her dad has ordered it, but there's something in her heart that is stirred. And Miriam, Moses' sister's watching. And she just happens to casually stroll along and say, Oh, I see you found a Hebrew baby there. Would you, would you like anyone to, to nurse that child? I can get a nanny for you. And she goes, yeah, I would love someone. And Moses' mother gets paid to look after her own child. Now, women, that's a good deal right there, mothers, isn't it? <laughs> Getting paid to look after your own child. In the middle of this mess, in the middle of this genocide, in the middle of this darkness, God is at work. His sovereign hand is guiding the ripples and the waves underneath that little basket. His sovereign hand is touching the heart of an Egyptian princess. Even though it would be 80 years before God would use Moses to deliver his people. God, at this moment, is looking into the future and he's putting things in place for them. I find that incredible. God is seeing into the future, the all-knowing God, the beginning and the end, who knows the future and the past and everything. He sees what's going to be needed 80 years from now and he starts orchestrating things right here with a little baby in the bulrushes. God knows what kind of deliverer Israel are going to need, the Hebrews are going to need. It can't be a slave because a slave can't set other people free. But it also can't be an Egyptian because the Egyptians hate the Hebrews. So what does he do? He smuggles the deliverer into the palace in plain sight to be raised as an Egyptian while in his heart he's still a Hebrew 
and he grows up educated as an Egyptian, treated like royalty. He walked like an Egyptian, in the words of the Bengals. He talked like an Egyptian, but in his heart, he was a Hebrew. He had a deep love for his own people. And he had a hatred for the oppression and the slavery they were enduring. And we see that in verses 11 and 12. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed an Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So one day he's out and he sees one of his own people being beaten and this inner frustration just erupts. This thing that he's been burying in his soul explodes out. And he looks around and he kills this Egyptian and he buries him quickly. Obviously it must have been quickly because he didn't bury him very well. His toe was probably sticking out of the sand or something like that, you know. Because look at what happens. The next day he went out and two Hebrews were fighting two of his own people. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man asked, who made you ruler and judge over us? They're saying to Moses, who made you ruler and judge over us? Isn't that a prophetic statement? Because one day he would be. Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Moses realizes that he's been caught and he has to flee. Moses is a man caught between two worlds. He's too Egyptian for the Hebrews and he's too Hebrew for the Egyptians. I reckon as he was growing up, the Egyptians looked at him funny. They knew he wasn't one of them. He had a different complexion. Maybe his eyes were closer together or further apart. I don't know. I'm not going to go there. But they knew. They knew he was different. The stories, the rumors had went round about where this little boy, even though he was adopted into the royal family, they knew there was something different and the stories had went round. And so the, 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 the Egyptians kind of kept him at a distance. But we can see here the Hebrews also said, who, who do you think you are? Because they saw him as the one who escaped. They saw him as the one who had lived the privileged life when they were under hard labor slaving for his father. And so he's caught between these two worlds. He's too Hebrew for the Egyptians and he's too Egyptian for the Hebrews. He doesn't really fit in anywhere. He's a bit of a misfit. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like you don't quite fit in with that group, but you also don't quite fit in with that group? Like, there's things about that group that you like and you agree with, but not enough to be fully over there. And there's things about this group, but not enough. I know I do. Like, like sometimes I don't feel Christian enough for some Christians, but I'm too, Christians for no, too Christian for non-Christians. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I don't feel conservative or... Reformed enough for some people, but I'm too reformed for some other people. I'm charismatic and, and, and Pentecostal to the core, but I don't fit with the crazy Pentecostals and charismatics, but the, the non-charismatics think I'm too charismatic and they think I'm crazy. I don't quite fit. 
I'm not Church of Ireland enough for the rest of the clergy in the Church of Ireland, but sometimes I'm too Church of Ireland for some other places. You know, I was thinking about that, living between two worlds. You know, when I, even from the, I became a Christian in my teens, I used to go to St. Mark's Parish in the morning and CFC in the evening. I was caught between two worlds. And isn't it funny? Here's what I was thinking. Isn't it funny out of the fact, we have five people typically who preach in this church. Me, Jamie, who was CFC, Paul and Priscilla, who started CFC, and Charlotte, who's in CFC. And 30-something years ago, I was caught between two worlds. And 30-something years later, here we find ourselves still caught sometimes between two worlds. Maybe you find yourself too introverted for one group, but you're too outgoing for others. You're too middle class for some people. You're too posh. But for others, you're not middle class enough. You're too culty for the towny and too towny for the culties. <laughs> people want you to fit into a box. They want you to be one thing or the other, but you don't quite fit. You're a, a misfit. People want to pigeonhole you and define you and label you, but sometimes you just need to live in that tension of neither being fully this or fully... I'm not talking about living with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. I'm talking about being fully in the kingdom but not always fitting with people. And there's this desire to want to fit and to water things down or become more extreme in one direction, but the reality is God has wired you a certain way and he doesn't always want you to fit because Moses was never meant to fit. If Moses had been fully Hebrew or fully Egyptian, he couldn't have done what God was calling him to do. Choose not to fit. Choose to be a misfit. Choose to live with the tension. Choose not to be either or, but to be both and. God wired you. God created you a certain way. It says Psalm 139, he knit you together in your mother's womb. And so your passions and your frustrations and your gifts and your abilities and your personality traits are all there from God. And yes, they need refined and yes, they need honed and yes, they need submitted to the Holy Spirit. But God made you that way for a reason. God made Moses to be a Hebrew Egyptian, to be an Egyptian Hebrew for a reason. It wasn't a mistake it was by God's sovereign design because he needed someone raised up in that environment who could deliver his own people. He needed someone who was a Hebrew, who wasn't a slave, so that other Hebrews could look and go, that's who we were meant to be like. We were meant to be free. A slave cannot free a slave. And God has put you in certain places where you mightn't feel like you fit. But there's parts of you that will identify with the people in those places and they will connect with parts of you. And God wants to use those parts of you to bring people into the fullness of his freedom. And you know, wasn't that our own predicament? That we were slaves to sin and we needed a man who could save us. But he had to be sinless. And only God is sinless. So 2,000 years ago, 
Jesus came fully God, fully man, not either or, both and. And he could identify with us and he could represent us and he could set us free by becoming the sinless sacrifice for our sin. He freed us from slavery. He freed us from oppression. He freed us from the Pharaoh of Satan. He freed us to bring us into liberty that we would know who we are as children of God. Moses didn't know it yet, but God had smuggled him into the palace and allowed Pharaoh to raise him because God had looked ahead and said, this is what I'm going to need. There's going to be a day when this man is going to be needed to liberate my people. And I believe God looked into 2023, into our world full of chaos and confusion, into our post-COVID world where there's one crisis after another, into our world of darkness and despair, into our world of uncertainty, into our world where there's division. God looked into 2023, I believe, in history, and he said, I need somebody like you there, to every one of you in here. God is so intentional. He's so intentional, we see that here. And God looked into this generation at this time and he said, I need a you. I need somebody who is wired like you. I need someone who has your gifts, your passions. I need someone who has your personality. I need someone who is wired like you to bring people to know me in this generation. You were born for such a time as this. But you don't feel ready. Maybe you feel too messed up. Maybe you feel too much. Maybe you're so aware of your own flaws. That's how Moses felt. Let's fast forward. He runs. He goes to a place called Midian. He marries a girl called Zipporah. Her dad's Jethro. And for the next 40 years, he spends his life as a shepherd looking after sheep in the back end of nowhere. What a step down from the palace to the pasture. From smelling the aroma of Egyptian perfume to smelling what comes out of sheep. What a turn his life had taken. I mean, that's a boring job. Every day just staring at sheep. Have you ever had a really boring job? Like a really boring job? Like I've had, I've had a few in my time. I once worked in the Royal Mail Return Letter Centre, which my job from 8.30 to 5 every day was to stand with all the posts that kind of didn't get posted and do this. I mean, that was boring just watching me do that for 10 <laughs> seconds there. I mean, I kind of bored myself right there. Imagine doing that every day from 8.30 to 5 o'clock. That's kind of like being a shepherd. Not the most exciting job in the world. This was not on Moses' bucket list. This was not on things to do before he died. But God placed him there because there was a work that God could only do in the wilderness. And sometimes God leads us into the wilderness. And it might be because of our own sin or stupidity, but it's often because there's a work that God can only do in the wilderness. 
There's a work that he can only do when we're taken away from the noise and the crowd and the distractions. And in the midst of this time when he's in the wilderness, the people of God are still being oppressed and their prayers rise up before God. Look at what we read. I'm about to finish. Verses 23 to 25. During that long period the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Eventually the God's people call out to him. And here's the thing. While they're crying out to him in Egypt, God is preparing a solution in Midian but they have no idea about it. While they're crying out to him over here, God is at work over here. But it looks over here like God is doing absolutely nothing. And how often in our lives does it feel like God is doing nothing? That we're praying, that we're crying out, that we're asking him, and he's doing nothing because over here where we are, we can't see anything. But he's doing something over here, which will affect over here. If only we will have the patience and the faith to wait. And it says that God looked on them. He was concerned. He heard them. God sees. God knows. God hears. And God cares. I'm going to jump forward here. Moses thought that he was done. Moses thought that he was finished, but he had no idea that the most significant part of his life was just about to begin. Moses thought that he had failed too badly. He had murdered somebody. Moses thought that God was finished with him, but he had no idea that God was just beginning with him. And can I say to you, there's been times in my life when I've thought, God's done with me. There's been times in my life where I've just thought, I I actually think I'm done. I can't keep doing this. Why would God ever use someone like me? And I look back now and I see God was only just beginning. God was only just getting started. And I would never choose those times but I would never change those times. And maybe right now you feel like you're in a wilderness. Maybe you feel like you're in a barren place. Maybe you're there because God has brought you there because he wants to do something there for what he's going to do through you. And Moses is in the wilderness and he doesn't know it, but he's about to have one of the most significant the most significant encounter of his life. He sees a bush and it's on fire, which isn't unusual in the wilderness in those temperatures. We've seen so many bush fires today. And he's about to walk on, but he stops and he pays attention. And he notices that even though the bush is on fire, it wasn't a big tree like you see in some you know, movies. It was a little shrub, a little thorny bush. He notices that while it's on fire, it's not being consumed. And so, look at what it says. Verses 2 to 4. 
I'm finishing here. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. The bush that does not burn up. This is what I want you to see. This is what I want you to see. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Moses sees this, but he stops. And it says when he turned, when he went over, then God spoke. When, then. If he had continued on, he would have missed this pivotal moment of his life. But he gave attention to something that looked ordinary. But as he looked at it even more, he realized there's something different about that. It's burning, but it's not being consumed. And God uses an ordinary bush burning in the wilderness to speak to Moses and change his life. And what I want to simply ask you is this. I wonder, have you had burning bush moments that you have missed because you're too distracted? I wonder, are there moments where God is speaking to you, where God is getting you, wanting to get your attention, but maybe you're, or maybe you're just too no- your life's too noisy or you're too distracted or you're too unfocused and there's a bush burning and you just keep on walking on. See, I believe God wants to communicate with all of us so much more than we're ready to listen. And I believe he communicates in simple, ordinary ways. Yes, sometimes it is dramatic ways with visions and all of that. But most of the time it's not a booming voice from the sky or angels river dancing on the duvet in the morning. Most of the time God communicates in really simple, ordinary ways. But the problem is it's so ordinary that we miss it. Sometimes for me, it's something I see. Something I see that everybody else sees, but with me it provokes a frustration, it provokes anger, it provokes joy, it provokes a response, and nobody else is bothered by it, but it bothers me. Remember Nehemiah? Everybody knew the walls were broken down, but Nehemiah weeps when he finds out. Are there things that you see that break your heart that nobody cares about? That's God speaking to you. Sometimes it's patterns. Two or three people say the same thing to you in a short space of time. Have you ever thought about doing this? You know, I was thinking about you the other day, and I was thinking this, and you find that two or three people say the same thing, or you, see, you hear the same Bible verse three times in two days. It's not very dramatic, but I believe God's speaking to you. Sometimes it's a little thought that goes into your head that won't go away. You know, I was thinking, Timmy, who was up here this week, this today? That guy. <laughs> You know, for last August, I messaged Timmy. And I'd thought about messaging him for weeks before that. And every time I'd thought about it, I thought, no, that's not the time. I didn't really know you. I'd met you once or twice, once. And, 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 but there came a day last August when I just thought, I'm going to message this guy. And I got onto Facebook Messenger and sent him a message at about noon. And I said, Timmy, would you ever think about helping us with our worship down here in Hope? 
And Timmy came back and he said, you're not going to believe this because he had sat down his guitar and stopped leading worship for a long time at that stage. And he got up that morning and the first thing as he was praying, he said this, I felt God say to me this morning, it's time to pick up your guitar. Then an hour later, he gets a random text from somebody else saying, Timmy, I feel God saying to you, it's time to pick up your guitar. Then I text him an hour later saying, Timmy, would you ever think about coming down to help us with worship? Nothing dramatic. Do you think God might have been in that? It can be song lyrics. It can be something silly. God spoke to me recently through the nursery rhyme, Three Blind Mice. Like, how silly is that? I woke up at 4.45 a.m. with three blind mice in my head. Now, what do you think three blind mice is about? I thought it was about three blind mice who got their tails chopped off. It's about the three reformers in the 16th century who were martyred by Mary for their faith. (laughs) Bet you didn't know that? Those little things that you go, where did that come from? It's a conversation. Seeing somebody you haven't seen someone for a long time. It's a light bulb moment. You're driving, you're doing the dishes and you've just this moment of clarity. It could even be a sermon where one sentence, one line just feels like it's just for you. It can be dreams or pictures. People keep telling you you're good at this. People ask for your help in an area. It's unusual favor in a certain area. There's something that you're doing that God just seems to be breathing upon. You started out just as a hobby, just as something that you kind of like, but there's just this favor on it. We look for the dramatic, and sometimes God does speak in dramatic ways, but most often it's in the ordinary, mundane, everyday moments that are so easy to miss because they're so ordinary and mundane. And God is putting something right in front of you. He's putting a burning bush right in front of you. But you're too distracted, and you're not willing to turn aside. You know, there's a little, we all know the verse in Isaiah 43, Behold, I am doing a new thing. But it's this little part of it here. It says, now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? It's springing up right in front of you. But are you perceiving it? Not everything is God speaking to you. Sometimes it is just a burst that's burning. But sometimes it's a burst that's burning that's not being consumed. And I believe God's word to us individually and God's word to us as a church is this take time to turn aside take time to turn aside because I want to speak to you and I want to guide you and lead you and direct you and open up doors and opportunities and all of those things but I need you to turn aside 